Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Daf HaShavuah as we continue to study Mesechas Chagiga. Incredibly, we're getting close to the end, and we're deep into some of the halachas of Tumah and Tahara. We actually began this at the end of the last parak, and it continues through the end of the Mesechta. But as I did last week, I want to try to connect some halacha lamasa to this daf. The halacha lamasa that I'm going to do this week, I'd say it's theological halacha lamasa. It's the belief in aspiration in the building of the Beis Hamigdash. And there's a Gemara here that we're going to come back to, but I want to just give a proper introduction that discusses uh, obvious practices that were done in order to show up the Tzdukim. Now, we know about a number of breakaway movements from mainstream Yahadus during the time of the second base Hamikdash, really up until the destruction of the second base Hamikdash. The Tzdukim slash Baisusim are one of these groups, or two of these groups, or some say that Stukim with the umbrella group and the Baisusim were a subgroup. We don't have time now for an entire uh, history lesson. Typically, we explain their position as believing in Torah Shebichsav and not Torah Shebaal If you look into the Rambam in Perak HaChelek, he says this is actually not true. That was just their marketing. And they didn't believe, even in Torah Shebichtav, at least Sadok and Baisos, Talmidim of one of the great Tanoim, did not believe, even in Torah Shebichtav, but you're just not going to get people into your crowd by undermining Torah Shebichtav. They had a strong impact on the community. They achieved, we know, towards the end of the second base Hamigdash, important positions in government as well as in the kahuna, even up to being the leading Kohen, the Kohen Gadol. In fact, and maybe because of the fact that they had these political positions, with the destruction, the Stukin basically fell away. They lost their power, they lost their position, and unlike the great Rabbi Yochanan Medzakai, who continued to promote aspirational aspects of Yahadus, Mashiach, Geula, redemption. Even in Yavna, as we know, enacting a number of practices that were not done before the destruction outside of Yerushalayim, such as taking the Lula for seven days, blowing the shofar on Shabbos, if it was Rosh Hashanah, and if you happen to take a look into a machzor over Pesach, which quotes from the Mishnah and Menachos, his whole approach to the Omer, as well as Chadash, that Stukim didn't have this power. But what we are finding in our Gemara is when the Stukim still did have prominence within the community. And HaChazal felt a need to go up against them. And we're going to spend a little time discussing the technical aspect of this, as well as the technical aspect of the Omer, and how ultimately, even Bizman Hazeh, before we've seen the redemption, how the Prushim approach wins the day. And even though we don't have Tzedukim, but there is a certain Tzeduki mentality that sometimes exists. And that's what I call a fatalistic mentality. 
the Stukim didn't believe in any of these concepts of Mashiach, Tchias HaMesim. Anything that wasn't explicitly spelled out in the Torah, they didn't only not believe in, because they, as I pointed out, they may have not believed in any of the fundamentals of Yehadas, but they didn't market them. And ultimately, their followers fell away and assimilated. Because if you don't believe that things could be greater, if you don't believe in Mashiach, in redemption, then what does it mean? When things are going poorly, we think it's all over. And that was the approach of the Stukim. I just summarized hundreds of years of Jewish history very briefly, but I'll explain it in the context of our Gemara and connect it a bit to Menachos and the Omer. It's something that we say every single night after the Omer and what it represents. Now, this is not the first time in our Masechta that we're dealing with the Tzdukim. And before we get to the very technical Gemara that we have over here, which is important, we saw in Daf Yudzayin, although the Tzdukim were not identified, they were the troublemakers in the Mishnah. We had the position of Hillel, who in fact had a more liberal position than Shammai. Shammai was the position that Aulas Re'iyah could not be brought on Shabbos, and it cannot be brought on Yom Tov. We're of the position following Hillel that the Olas Re'iyah could not be brought on Shabbos, but could be brought on Yom Tov. So what ended up happening if Shavuos fell out on a Shabbos, it would be delayed to Sunday. And that should have been a quasi-day of Simcha, no Hespetim, no Tanis, and some other public celebration that should have taken place. However, all of this was waived, as Mishnah pointed out over there, in order to deal with those individuals who felt that this should have been a day of celebration. And those individuals, if we match up with what's happening over here, were the Tzduka. Now this brings us to the Mishnah that I referred to in Menachos, because the Mishnah of Menachos in the 10th parak, and we know this, of course, from the Pasuk and Pasha's Emma, that there was a position of the Tzdukim that Mimacharas Hayom, that the Sunday after the Yom Tov of Pesach, and we're going to assume, as most do, that we're talking about the Sunday after the first day of Yom Tov, that would by definition be the time of bringing the Omer. So if you go seven weeks ahead, that would end up being the day after Shavuos, if you do the matching up of the calendar. In fact, the Tzdukim tried to even fix the Tosef that tells us in Rosh Hashanah of having Rosh Chodesh Nisan always falling out on a Sunday. So this would work out with their entire agenda. And what we end up having in the Mishnah in Menachos, in a more manifest way than even what's spelled out earlier on Daf Yudzayin, is that Chazal would go out of their way to try to make the Tzedukim look bad. So therefore, when the celebration of the Omer took place, it was a very public uh, display. They would start the night before, that's when the Tzira took place, the Hava, the bringing took place on the 16th, and there was a whole dialogue that took place between those that were bringing it and the audience going out of their way to show that the bringing of the Omer was done on Motz, on the day after the first day of Pesach. You start doing the cutting, the reaping, 
the motze of the first day of Pesach, unlike the position of the Stukim and the Baisusim. You have to understand, just from a historical perspective, as I mentioned at the beginning of the Shir, the power of the Stukim of the Baisusim from the time a bit before the Hanukkah story until the destruction. We see somewhat of a reemergence of this philosophy a thousand years later in the time of the Gaonim, and we still have a remnant of these Karaites who are around today. But Stukim and Baisusim and, and the Karayim are different movements. The way the Marat Chayis explains it, similar to the Rambam that I mentioned at the beginning from Hachela, that none of these uh, movements, at least the founders, believed in the Torah itself, but for marketing purposes, they had to at least claim that they believed in the Torah Shabbat. Those of you that studied the first parak of Pirkei this week, so we see how Antigonus Isocho, in discussing Scharva Onesh in the very first parak, he was misinterpreted by his students, Sadok and Baisos, saying that uh, Antigonus Isocho was saying there's no Scharva Onesh in this world. So let's throw in the uh, towel. They didn't need that argument, but that was an argument that they used. And this is consistent with what I pointed out in the beginning of this year. They weren't into these theological ideas. They weren't into Mashiach, Sparva Onesh, and they were not aspirational for Yemosa Mashiach. The relevance of it today, in what, what do we do when we say Sfir Omer? We end it with Harachman Hyasalano Abos Vespace of Migdash. We want to get back to the point where we're not just talking about the Omer, but that we are bringing the Omer. Now, the context in our Gemara, and this was my excuse to give you this whole discussion, was what we find on Daf Chav Gimel Amid Aleph. The Tanan, because we learned in the Mishnah, this is quoting from the Mishnah in Para, because we're discussing over here the Tuma of the Para, the Para Duma. What Chazal would do, as the Gemara explains, in order to react to the Tzutukim, is they would purposely make Tame the Kohen who was going to burn the the para, in order to discredit the opinion of the Tzutukim. We used to say, that the avoda of the paraduma could only be performed by Kohanim who became Tame after they already experienced the night. Now, this was not the halacha, because the Gemara goes on to explain, according to Rebbe Eliezer, that they actually could become Tahar that day. So they went publicly out of their way to make the Kohen become Tame. Let him then, after he does his Tahara, and goes to the mikvah, do the avoda on that day, go out of their way to show that he didn't need the night in order to become Tahar. Now, again, if we're following this theory, they didn't believe, the Tzutim didn't believe in any of these halakhas, especially halakhas of Tzutim Tahara, but these were opportunities for them to push their agenda. It's a very important Rambam, since we're doing such a beautiful discussion on the Tzutim, at least on one foot, I would tell you to look at the Rambam, in Mishnah Torah, Hilchus Tamidu Musafim, 7-11, Tarek Zion Yud Aleph, who the Rambam over here is talking about the corruption of the Tzutukim and how they tried to infiltrate, and to unfortunately a certain extent were successful 
in the base Hamikdash, but here he's talking about in the context of Pesach and Shavuos. That what exactly does it mean when it says Mimachras HaPesach? Going back to Parshas Emor, the determining factor is not that it should always be on a Sunday, but it should always be the day after the first day of the Chag. So this Gemara is part of this much broader discussion. The way I would apply it, in addition to the Sphere Asa Omer discussion that I pointed out, is just to understand the validity and the sustainability of Torah Shabbat Pesach. It's so important to keep in mind that Pesach Lashvuos and the aspirational element as well. The last piece I want to deal with today is a very fascinating piece relating to Paraduma on our daf. And again, we're going to connect this halacha I want to thank uh, my chaver, Rabbi Daniel Karapkin. He's a rav in Toronto, happens to be the president of the RCA, and an expert Kohen who I uh, discussed the sugya with. And he was very helpful, especially in trying to bottom line it, halacha The context that we have here in our Gemara is the paraduma as it relates to the Kohen. Now we know that the halachas of Paraduma, which was necessary, Bizman Hamigdash, in Eretz Yisrael, for Tahara, it's not something that applies only to a Kohen, but that's how we're explaining it based on our Gemara. The reality is, is that anytime someone leaves Eretz Yisrael, he attains the status of Tumazov. And therefore, these halachos don't apply in Chutzlaretz, both because of the irrelevance of the paraduma to Chutzlaretz and because of the acquired status of Tumah that is given to someone by definition when they leave Eretz Yisrael. The reason why I bring that up is, believe it or not, to make this halachlamasa discussion. Because everyone today, and even Bisman Hamigdash, people outside of Chutzlaretz, are going to have a status of Tumah. And likely today, even Kohanim, at some point in their lives, came into contact, either directly or through Tomas Ohel, with a deceased. So the question that often comes to me is, once you're already Tameh, so then why is there an issue of more Tumah? Well, the practical question that comes up even when a Kohen is allowed to go to a Leviah for one of his seven relatives, where it's not only an option, but generally we would say it's a responsibility, there are going to be some exceptions to the rule, then how about coming into contact with other Mesa, either on the way into the Levi or on the way out? Or maybe once the Kohen is already in the Beis HaKvaros, he could come into contact maybe with a friend whose kever is close by and he didn't have the chance to go. And why shouldn't a Kohen be able to go to any kever once he already has Tumah that's on him. So I want to just explain something that's not very well known. Before I get into the halacha lamasa, the, the halachas of paraduma are so mysterious, and maybe death itself is so mysterious. It's something that we're unfortunately confronting so much of during this terrible uh, pandemic 
that the Sefer Achinoch, whose tendency was to give the Tameh HaMitzvahs, when it comes to Parshas Chukas, Mitzvah, Shin, Tzadi, Zayin, he basically puts his hands up, quotes a Pasuk from Kohela, Zayin, Chav and says, I have no way of explaining this. There's so many paradoxes, so many mysteries to these halachas. The only thing that you really could take away from the Sefer Achinoch is at the very end, he says, remember, there's a halacha, liolam ein mafsikin bein parshas par la parshas chodesh, v'ashabas hakavu la parshas chodesh, liolam hu shabas kodam nisan. He reminds us of the chiyuv today to read parshas para in its right zman, which actually ties into what I said at the outset of the shir, that even today we're very futuristic. We're thinking not just of the past, but of the futuristic when it was so important for the carbon Pesach for there to be tahora to those that had contact with Mason, not just Kohanim, but everyone. So the bottom line is, and we know this from a Gemara in Nazir, and many of these halachas of Nazir and Kohen are going to be the same as far as not being able to contact with a mace, daf membeis, amad aleph, and amad beis. And the basic maskana there from the Mishnah and the Gemara is that when a Kohen is metame, in a situation whether he's allowed to be matame or not be allowed to be matame, that tuma is treated independently of any other further tuma. So let's say we're dealing with a situation where a nazir, in our situation, a kohen, is not allowed to be matame. It's not one of his relatives. So he'd have to bring carbon chattis. If the next day he's matame to someone else, he has to bring another carbon, which means that tuma is not just a status that stays status quo, but each time that a person becomes tummy when they're not allowed to, there's a further violation in this situation of what a Kohen is allowed to do or not. Not a very well-known halacha. And this translates halacha lamasa into an important discussion in the Shulchan Aruch, originally in the tour, Shin Ayin Gimel. The way the tour presents the position, and the tour says it's based on a Rambam, Others say the Rambam's position is different. You look here into the Bach. And the Torah says that on the way to the funeral, assuming that, let's assume that it's a situation where the relative is in contact with the mace carrying the Aron. I'm presenting it in this limited situation because this will uh, allow us to present this in just a few minutes. He's involved with the mace. So there's no issue then to come into contact with another mace. However, on the way out of the Leviah, the tour says, there would be a problem because now he's no longer dealing with the mace and now you're going to run into the problem that each time you come into contact with the mace, there's going to be additional tuma issues. Now, it could be it's only going to be one issue because a lot of it's happening at the same time. Not like I said before, it's day after day, but either way, it would be a prohibition. And that's why the Torah brings down the minhag that's already mentioned in the Rambam that the Kohanim have a special place in a cemetery. The reason Kohanim have a special place in the cemetery on the outskirts of the cemetery is not so that their relatives could visit them at other times, which may be true as well, assuming that they're far away enough, but it's so they don't come into contact with other mason. Because when a person is given the allowance, the dispensation, a coin, to come into contact with one of the Zion Krovim, 
it's only while they're being osik in the kvur itself. This is basically the way it's brought down in the Ramah. You can find this in the Ramah, Shin Ayin Gimel Siv Zayin. I'm quoting the tour that as soon as you finish the burial, we assume that Surah Sakever, then one has to separate from the other Mesim. Now, if you look into the Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch has, has a much broader prohibition, and this is actually the way the Bach understands the Rambam, so the somewhat of a Machlokas had to understand the Rambam, that even on the way into the funeral, there would be an issue. Because you only could come into contact with your mace, not with other mason. Halacha would generally follow the view of the Ramah. Now, there is a tshuva of Ramosha Feinstein, which I'm not going to go into great details today, but it's a shalos tshuva's igros moshi yardeh chalik aleph simon reish nun beis. What happens in a situation where you didn't get the prime spot. Let's say there's a family of Kohanim who, the bottom line is, the kever is inside a cemetery. Does that mean that the Krovim aren't allowed to go? And even if they're allowed to go, what, do they have to fly out there? A helicopter has to pick them up? Even that could end up being an issue, that they're on top of it? So Ramosha has a way around this problem, but clearly the ideal, and generally that's the practice, is that Kohanim have special places in a cemetery which allows the burial to take place and allows the immediate relatives to return home. Hopefully, we've accomplished a lot. We should go from thinking about Yagon to Simcha and continue to have great learning.